great to be in God's house today, and uh, it's good to see uh, we have visitors here this morning. Of course, I've uh, noticed several uh, that have come in today. We want to welcome you, and I just want to say to you and say to everybody else that's here, just a reminder that um, here at Calvary Baptist Church, we, we're, we're not... Uh, a special bunch of people. We're not, um, you know, maybe even all that impressive a bunch of people, but we're just normal people who gather week to week uh, to worship God. Um, we don't do anything fancy. We're not, we're not trying to put on a show or entertain. We're here to seek God. We're here to get into His Word, and that's what we're about to do right now. Um, I'm going to try to preach His Word uh, in a way that is, uh, that is just the truth of His Word. And uh, so my job today as I stand before you is not to impress you with my speaking abilities or even to uh, try to persuade you uh, to believe or do anything. I just preach the Word of God. And that's what we're going to do uh, here this morning. We're in 1 Corinthians chapter 6. And actually, we'll be in chapter 5, beginning of verse 9. We'll be traveling into to chapter 6 as well. And uh, that precursor may make a little bit more sense as we go through this message because what we're looking at today is not a message that draws crowds. It's not a message that makes people think, uh, man, I feel good about myself today. You know, uh, when I went to church, that, uh, that, that sermon just really uplifted me or that sermon just really uh, inspired me. Uh, this is a very difficult letter that was written to a church that was out of control. And uh, the church at Corinth had turned to their own ways. They'd become very sinful. There were a lot of things that were going on in, the, in the church that the Apostle Paul was not pleased with at all. And as we are preaching through and studying through the book of 1 Corinthians, that means that when we come to verses like this, we don't get to skip over them. We have to deal with them as they come along. And so that's exactly what we're going to do today. And uh, so for anybody that's here, member, whether you're a member or not, uh, you know, as we leave today, you may not uh, just feel encouraged by what's said. You may not uh, feel inspired by what's said, but I hope you'll feel convicted by what's said. And if God has convicted your heart, I hope that you'll uh, be obedient to what God has said. And uh, that's what our aim and our goal is today. Uh, we worship God by making sacrifices of ourselves to Him. Uh, we're to sacrifice ourselves daily. And so you've had the opportunity to give money. You've had the opportunity to offer your songs. But uh, now we get to offer ourselves. Let's uh, have our hearts prepared and ready to listen to and to accept whatever it is that God may say to us this morning. 1 Corinthians chapter 5. And I want you to begin reading with me in verse 9. He says, I wrote unto you in an epistle not to company with fornicators, yet not altogether with fornicators of this world, or with the covetous, or extortioners, or with idolaters, for then you must needs go out of the world. But now I have written unto you not to keep company, if any man that is called a brother be a fornicator, or covetous, or an idolater, or a railer, or a drunkard, or an extortioner, with such a one know not to eat. For what have I to do to judge them that are without? That's talking about outside of the church, people who are not members or who don't know Christ. What have I to do to judge uh, those that are without? Do you not judge those that are within? Talking about their own membership. But them that are without, God judges. Therefore, put away from yourselves that wicked person. And uh, let's bow to the Lord in prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the day. God, we know that the verses we'll deal with today are difficult. And... Uh, and Lord, they're hard to hear, but God, they're your truth. 
And we must accept these difficult things just as we do the other beautiful promises that we have in your word. I pray that today we'll have open hearts as we enter into the message. Lord, help us to seek your will. Draw us closer to you. And Lord, if there's sin that needs to be repented of, I pray that you'll convict our hearts of it and help us to turn from them. We're so thankful for all that you've done. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Last week we dealt with a very sensitive and difficult subject of church discipline, uh, which is talked about in 1 Corinthians chapter 5 uh, in the first eight verses. Today we're talking about church judgment, another word that nobody wants to talk about or, uh, or to discuss, but it's something that we must deal with as we're going through uh, these chapters. And so we're talking about church judgment today. Now judgment, just like the word discipline and, and other words, is a very sensitive area in our culture. Have you noticed that? Judgment is a very sensitive area in our culture. As a matter of fact, the word judgment itself probably has stirred something up inside of you as you think about the word judgment because judgment is misused in so many ways. And so as we're talking about judgment in the church and judgment's place in the church, we're not talking about the, uh, the negative connotations of judgment that you may already have fixed in your mind. We're talking about godly, scriptural, spirit-led judgments that we have to make sometimes. And, and that's what we're going to be dealing with today. So I want you to kind of forget what you think you know about judgment and what you think you know the Bible says about judgment this morning. Just forget that for a little while. Let's look at what God's Word has to say about it. And then let's come back to a healthy approach of this subject of judgment within the church. All right. Now, the word itself, judgment, as we said, it, it sometimes carries a very negative connotation. We love to quote Jesus' favorite words. As a matter of fact, and I've said this before, there are people who have never been to church before. There are people who have never read their Bible before. But if they know any scripture from the Bible, they know this. Jesus said, judge not lest ye be judged. How many of you knew the Bible said that, right? We know that. Anybody could quote that. An atheist will quote that to you if they think that it helps to win an argument with a Christian, right? We love to bring that verse up. That verse says we are not to judge. And how we use it is, is that under no circumstance, in no way whatsoever, any time, any place, for any reason, are we ever to cast any shadow of judgment on anything or anybody at any time. And I'm going to tell you, that is the most unbiblical thing I've ever heard. That is not Scripture. That is not God's Word. That is not right. There is judgment that should never take place. But there is judgment that must take place. And that's what we're going to try to look at today. It's difficult, but I hope that you'll bear with me through the sermon because you may find some, uh, some great truths here that uh, may uh, get, bring some freedom and some understanding to your life. We seem, as we, uh, as we quote that, Judge not, lest ye be judged. We seem to hold our hands over our eyes as we read the remainder of what Jesus said in that chapter when he told us to make discerning judgment about false teachers and, uh, and to correct the sins of those uh, that, that may have sinfulness in their lives around us. As a matter of fact, we also love to go where it says, uh, don't, uh, why are you judging the, uh, the, the moat or the, the little speck in your brother's eye when you've got a beam in your own eye? 
And so we use that as further explanation. See, we should never look into anybody else's life and bring any sort of suggestions or any sort of corrections or any sort of judgment into the life of another. But Jesus did not say, don't judge your brother. Jesus did not say, don't correct your brother. Jesus said, how can you rightly correct your brother when you've got something that's obstructing your own eye? And in fact, what he says is first remove the moat from your own eye and then you can see clearly to help your brother with what's in his eye. You see what I mean? Judgment is not unscriptural. Judgment is scriptural, but only in the right context. And that's what we're going to look at. Judgment itself is not the problem. Judgment is necessary. If you are a person without judgment, then you're going to be a person who's making terrible, horrible decisions on a daily basis. If you have no judgment or no ability to look out and to make judgment, the proper judgment, then you're going to live a life that's going to be full of terrible, terrible decisions. We need judgment. We need discernment. We need to be able to make wise decisions, to look at options and look at what's there and make judgments accordingly. Judgment is necessary. And at times we have to make hard decisions when it comes even to other people. The problem with judgment is when we attempt to make judgments that we are not authorized to make. With the heart that's not acting out of the spirit of truth and love. And so when Jesus said judge nine, he was talking about self-righteous criticism. He was saying don't be hypercritical of other people. For with the same way that you criticize others you also will be held to that same standard of judgment. When you point your fingers and stare down your nose at other people and are making those types of unhealthy judgments about others, he says with that same measurement that you judge them with is going to come back on you. Now that kind of judgment is wrong. But just because that kind of judgment is wrong does not mean that all judgment is wrong. The kind of judgment is wrong is the kind that is directed at the person and not the sin. Judgment that dishes out consequences that super exceed the crime that's committed. However, please understand this for the purpose of our study today. Understand this, that churches are taught and commanded to judge their members as the loving and appropriate response to sinfulness. Now, what does that mean? Does that mean that today, through our message, I'm going to be handing out judge license to all of you that gives you the freedom to walk around and judge whoever you want for whatever you, you want? Absolutely not. That's not what this is talking about. As a matter of fact, you personally, on many levels, do not have the right to be able to make judgments like that. We're talking about the church making judgments. We're talking about the responsibility of the church to hold its members accountable to God and to one another. And I'm going to tell you this morning, the church does have the authority and the right to judge its own members. To look at the lifestyle, look at the behavior, to listen to the words of its own members And make judgments accordingly. I'm not talking about judgment. You're a bad person. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about being able to hold people accountable for their sin. 
You know what? I'm going to say this morning that I'm thankful. I told our class today, they're going to get tired of me talking about family and talking about stuff in the family. I'm thankful that I grew up in a family that held me accountable for the decisions that I made. I'm thankful that I grew up in a family that cared about and loved me enough that when I began making decisions that were wrong, when I began making decisions that were unwise, or when I began making decisions that would have brought shame on the God we worship and the family I represent, I'm thankful that I grew up in a family that would lovingly correct me back in line. And I'm going to tell you, as a church, we are a family. We are a family. In fact, we are a body. And as this body functions together, if a member or members begin acting in ways that is detrimental to the God we worship and the function which He has called us to, uh, to carry out and, and the, the person and people He's called us to be, if someone is, uh, is, is bringing reproach upon that or bringing a bad name upon that or they're making decisions that are going to, you know, of course, uh, hinder what, what God wants to do in and through our church, then we have the responsibility to lovingly, patiently, mercifully, and sometimes, um, I don't want to say harshly, but sometimes uh, directly and, and firmly bring that person to correction. Through words, through our prayers, through discussions, and even as we saw last week, sometimes through church discipline. It's difficult to do. It's difficult to talk about. But a a family that loves one another is going to hold one another accountable. And I want you to know that if you're a member of Calvary Baptist Church, we're going to hold you accountable. We're not going to hold you accountable because we hate you. We're not going to hold you accountable because we want to embarrass you. We're going to hold you accountable because we love you. And we understand the detriment of the decisions that we can make sometimes. We see the judgment of members in verses 9 through 13. Now listen, I've heard some members say, I don't have to answer to the church for what I've done. And maybe even as you've listened to what I've said this morning, some of you have said in your own hearts, I don't care what you say, Pastor. I don't have to answer to the church for what I've done. What I do, my decisions are between me and God alone. I don't owe the church an answer for anything that I would lovingly guide you to verses 9 through 12. Let's look at what it says there. He says, I wrote unto you an epistle not to company with fornicators, with people who are practicing the marriage privileges outside of the marriage covenant. Is that plain enough? He says, do not keep company with fornicators. He says, yet not altogether with fornicators of this world or with the covetous or extortioners or idolaters, for then you must needs go out of the world. Now, this is where church takes things to the extreme. The Bible says not to keep company with fornicators. All right, then anybody we know who's living with somebody they're not married to, then we're not to keep company with them or we're not to talk to people we know are liars. or We're not to talk to people we know are drunkards or we're not to talk to people who we know are living outside God's commands. Look at what he said. That's not what he said. He said in verse 9, he said, uh, or verse 10, Yet not altogether with the fornicators of this world, or covetous, or, or extortioners, or idolaters. 
For then you must needs go out of the world. What does that mean? Church, it means that we are to love. We are to walk with those who are outside of our church, who don't know Christ, and who are living in sin, that we are to make relationships with and love them to Jesus as hard and as best as we possibly can. It means that we're not to shun the sinful of this world. We are not to shun the addicted of this world. We are not to shun the outcasts of this world. We are to love them. But this is what it does say for those who are are born again, saved believers in the church. Verse 11. But now I have written unto you not to keep company if any man that is called a what? A brother... Be a fornicator or covetous or idolater or a railer or a drunkard or an extortioner. He says, with such a one, no, not to eat. What does that mean? We love sinners who don't know Jesus. We love them to Christ. We teach them the gospel. We show them the, the love and the mercy and the grace of God. When they become members of the church... We don't turn our backs on them and and let the hammer drop on them. But what we do is we hold them accountable for sin at that point. And then if someone who is constantly practicing the things that we've mentioned here in the church, if someone is constantly doing that, that we lovingly hold them accountable and bring them to correction. That's what it means. Let me use the family again. If you're a child under the age of 18, raise your hand. Very good. I want you to know something. I love you. And you have your own families. But if you were orphaned, my job as a father and as a Christian would be to love you, to help you, to reach out to you, to do all that I could for you. And I want you to know that we have done that. Our family has absolutely done that. And we will do that. But know this. The day your name changes to Phillips, there are things you will not get away with. There are things you will not say. There are things you will not do. There are are things you will not get called up with and me not do or say something about it. See, that's the difference. When you become a child of God, when your name gets changed from whatever your name is, and spiritually you're given the name of God, you're to be held accountable. And we as a loving family are to hold one another accountable, and we're going to see that it is better for the church to hold you accountable for what you've done than to deliver you over into the hands of God and let Him hold you accountable for what you've done. You would much rather us address the sin that's going on in your life than us to turn you over to Him and let Him address the sin that's going on in your life. Just like my children would much rather be held accountable by their brothers and sisters than they would be brought before Daddy. See what I mean? Church, we have to, we must hold one another accountable in love 
We must hold each other up when we've fallen. This doesn't mean that we come down on somebody when they fall into sin, but it means we quickly and lovingly bring correction and, and speak truth and wisdom and a God's Word into whatever's going on in their situation. Now that's church. That's church. And there's a lot of people that are playing church that aren't doing church. And if you go to church just to feel good about yourself on Sunday because you clocked in and did something religious for once. And then go home and expect nobody to ever speak into or say anything about the choices you made. I have something to tell you. You're not doing church. You're not in a church. You're not, you're not, being, you're not part of a church family that loves you and that's going to guide you and correct you. And I'm, I wouldn't dare stand up and say, that, and I hope you don't misinterpret what I'm saying, that if you go to any other church, that that's what's going to happen. You've got to come here in order for that to take place. That's not what I'm saying at all. What I'm saying is wherever you are, a church holds its members accountable. A church loves each other enough to do that. And that is the kind of church that we're seeking to be. As we looked at last week, the church's trigger response to sin should not be church exclusion, but there are other ways to be disciplining and correcting our members. Look in verse 11. He says, I've written with you not to keep company if any man is that is a brother be a fornicator or covetous or idolater or railer or drunkard or extortioner. He says, with such one, no, not to eat. And I believe he's talking about the Lord's Supper in that verse. Now, there could be other interpretations of that, but I think that's exactly what he's saying. is not to eat uh, the Lord's Supper, partake in the Lord's Supper, which he's going to deal with a little bit later, with someone that is known to be living in that kind of lifestyle. And so other ways that we correct is we talk to, we speak truth into the lives of those we know are walking outside of God's will. We restrict participation and privileges for those who are continuing to live in sin. And if it comes down to it, as verse 13 tells us, we withdraw fellowship from people who are living like that. Verse 13, but them that are without God judges, therefore put away from yourself that wicked person. There comes a time when... We must do uh, withdraw fellowship in order to preserve the purity of the church. This is one of the reasons why many churches only allow members of their church to participate in the Lord's Supper. If you ever come to our church at a time that we're taking the Lord's Supper, please know that only the members of Calvary Baptist Church were taking the Lord's Supper when we have it. That's not to judge. It's not to exclude anybody else. It's not to look down on anybody else. But listen, I want you to think about this. If we are not to even partake in the sacred ordinance with members of the church who are found to be idolaters, drunkards, and etc., then why would a church dare to invite anyone to come and partake in that sacred, holy ordinance with them? If we are to judge our own selves before we eat this meal with one another, then how could we have the audacity just to say, whoever wants to partake? Partake. You see what I mean? Now that's hard. People don't like that. But this is why it's practiced this way. We are to protect the sanctity and the holiness of our church and its ordinances. And we do so by consistently and lovingly confronting sin in the church. Now let me close this point by asking a question. 
How many things that we find pointed out in verse 11 could be avoided if the church would preemptively address and encourage people when they begin to head down the wrong road? Look at verse 11. He says, not to keep company with a brother that's a fornicator, that's covetous, that's an idolater, that's a railer, that's somebody who likes to fight, somebody who likes to constantly be arguing and uh, causing trouble, a drunkard or an extortioner. He says, with such a one, know not to eat. Now, these that have been listed here are people who've been allowed to just go on their own path to a point where they have become known as an extortioner or an adulterer or whatever it may be. But how many of these things could be stopped in their tracks if we knew each other well enough and loved each other and were close enough that when we see a brother or a sister who is beginning to walk out of the way that we correct them and stop it before it ever gets too far. Barney Fife used to say this all the time. You got to do what? Nip it in the bud. That's right. Nip it in the bud. How many of these sinful practices would never flourish if we would learn as a church to nip it in the bud before it ever gets started? I love the fact that our church family is close. We're close enough that I can, I can look out and I can see who's missing. And I can see who not only has been missing because they're sick, but they've just been missing. Or I can see someone who's coming, but when they come, they're not really singing with all their hearts. Or I can notice that when somebody's coming, they're kind of withdrawn from everybody else, not really talking to other people. Or I can see that Something else is going on. I know their lives personally enough to to know some of what's going on outside of the church as well. And I'm thankful that I believe we have a relationship that's good enough that when I see you standing off, when I begin to notice that something's changing about your lifestyle, that I can shoot you a text message or give you a phone call or pull you off for a second and just say, hey, just want to check on you. What's going on? How are you doing? How are, is everything going all right? Is there anything I can pray for you about? What am I doing when I do that? I'm trying to get you stopped before you go too far. I'm trying to get you engaged before you get disconnected. That's where it starts. And I'm going to tell you something. That's not my job because I'm the pastor to do that. That's my job because I'm your brother in Christ. And it's your job to do that for one another. It's our job to love each other and to hold each other accountable. To step in the way when somebody seems to be drifting off. Tell them we love them. Pray for them. Walk with them through whatever it is that they're struggling with. We also see a judgment of civil matters in the church as well. And this is in verses uh, chapter 6 verses 1 through 8. Now, I want to say that what we're about to look at, I've never witnessed in my 34 years of going to church. I've never seen this before. Let's look at verses 1 through 3. He says, There any of you having a matter against another, go to law before the unjust and not before the saints. Do you not know that the saints shall judge the world? And if the world shall be judged by you, are you unworthy to judge the smallest matters? 
Know ye not that we shall judge angels how much more the things that pertain to this life. Now evidently there were people uh, in the church who were feuding and fighting that had actually been going to law against one another. I mean they were uh, taking their cases to judge Judy and they were looking for just judgment to take place. But they had refused to handle these matters between themselves. Paul actually instructs the church to handle their own civil disputes. Anybody ever witnessed that in church? I've never seen that happen. But we are commanded in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 1 through 3, that if we have a civil dispute, if I have borrowed money from you and I owe you money, which is why I'm never going to borrow money from you, (laughs) but if I borrow money from you and I owe you that money and refuse to pay you back, What Paul says is, don't go down to Judge Judy and take care of this. He says, you bring it to the church and you handle that yourselves in here. Let the family deal with the family. right? Don't take it outside and let an unjust or an un... What he's saying is someone who doesn't know God's word. Let one of their judges judge what's going on. He says, you've got enough wisdom. You've got the word of God. You've got people in the church that that have enough common sense... To make a judgment on what needs to be done. Now, if I borrow money from you and I owe that money to you, it doesn't take a rocket scientist or somebody with a law degree to say, you need to pay them back. Right? Right? And if that's not enforced, of course, then, uh, I mean, I guess there's other steps that we talked about with church discipline that would take place. I can't throw people in jail or uh, the church can't do things like that. But there are other ways that we can handle our own matters between one another. I believe the point behind this is twofold. First of all, that we as a church have the Word of God and we have the Spirit. And so we should be able to handle the silly matters between ourselves. Second of all, going to law with your brother or anybody else, please listen to what I'm saying. Going to law with your brother or anybody else is a hindrance to the gospel. It is a hindrance to the gospel. It is a shame for a Christian to go to law against somebody else. It's a shame. It's a shame to the gospel. It's a shame to the word of God. It's a shame to the church. That's all I'm going to say about that. But I'm just telling you what Paul said. Let's look at what he says. In verse 4, if, if then you have judgments of things pertaining to this life, set them to judge which are least esteemed in the church. He says, I speak to your shame. Is it so that there is not a wise man among you? No, not one that should be able to judge between his brethren. He says, but brother goes to law against brother, and that before unbelievers. Now therefore there is utterly a fault among you, because you go to law with one another. Why do you not rather take wrong? Why do you not rather suffer yourselves to be defrauded? He says, no, you do wrong and defraud. And, uh, and even in that, you're doing that to your brothers, is what that last phrase means. What Paul says here. As he says, it is a hindrance to the gospel. It is a hindrance to our work. When we are so caught up in our own personal rights, we are so caught up in, uh, in us getting the just judgment that we deserve, that we're willing to defraud and, uh, and you know, of course, to penalize another person for something. And evidently, this has just gotten out of hand in the church there. Now, listen, I, I'm not telling you, uh, well, we'll just stick with what God says here. 
you know, and, uh, and you know, let's try to uh, do the best we can to handle some civil matters that we can here. Now, there's some things, of course, that we know can't be handled here, but you understand what I'm saying. Paul almost ridiculing the leaders of the church may be suggesting that if they didn't have the wisdom to conduct such, <clears throat> such business, excuse me, that even the lowest esteemed members of the church should be able to give them a hand with it. It'd be kind of like saying, pastors and deacons, if you're not able to figure this out, give it to the youth group. At least there should be somebody there that's smart enough to handle this. You know, that, that's what he's really saying here. This is not rocket science is what he's getting at in verses 5 through 6. In other words, your personal grievances are not important enough to lose our effectiveness in the community. He says, handle these problems yourself. That's what he's getting at. Then Paul really goes to meddling. In verses 7 through 8, I want you to look at, at, let's read what it says here. He says, Now therefore there is utterly a fault among you, because you go to law with one another. Why do you not rather take wrong? Why do you not suffer yourselves to be defrauded? Let me ask you this question. Is it so bad to just allow yourself to be wrong sometimes? You borrow money from me. And you, you promise I'm going to pay that loan back. And when you don't pay that loan back, is it better for me to hold you accountable, to bring you before the church and make a big deal out of this? Or would it be just so bad for me to say, you know what, I don't agree with what's been done. I don't mind confronting them and telling them I don't agree with what's been done. But God is the one that provides for me. And I release you of the debt. I release you from what you've said. I release you from what you've done. We're brothers. Sisters. Christ. We're family. I don't appreciate what's been said or done, but I'll take it. Would it be so bad to do that? Verse 8, why do you not rather take wrong? Why do you not suffer yourselves to be defrauded? If somebody's going to mistreat you, just let them mistreat you. Let God handle the rest. He says, no, you do wrong and you defraud. And even worse than that, you're doing it to your brothers and your sisters in Christ. How sad. Now, I don't know that any in here are guilty of such a thing. But it's sad that any of this would take place under any setting. Wouldn't it be better to suffer as the afflicted rather than to suffer as the afflictor? We see a judgment of character in verses 9 through 11. And this is the last thing. So just a few more minutes if uh, you can bear with me. Judgment of character, chapter 6, verses 9 through 11. Now Paul is a mouthful of people who I want you to notice, he says, will not inherit the kingdom of God. Look at verses 9 and 10. He says, Know you not that the unrighteous shall not inherit the kingdom of God? Be not deceived. Neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor infamous, nor abusers of themselves with mankind, nor thieves, nor covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor extortioners shall inherit the kingdom of God.
Now there are two ways that we can look at what Paul said. First, we could use it as a lens through which to see our others. We could view everybody else and say, well, you're this or you're that or you've done this or you've done that. So you couldn't possibly inherit the kingdom of God. But I think more rightly what he's saying is that we're to judge our own character. That we use it as a lens to see ourselves. Look back in verse 8 with me. He says in verse 8, you do wrong and you defraud and you do that to your brothers. Looks like he's pointing at something that's going on in their own hearts, in their own lives. And I want you to look at verse 11. We could look at it as a lens to see others, but I think verse 11 points it right back to ourselves. He says, and such were some of you, but you are watched, you are sanctified, you are justified in the name of the Lord Jesus and by the Spirit of our God. These Corinthians may once have been in the same boat as others, and some may have even strayed back to their former lifestyles, but Paul reminded them of who they are in Christ. So let me say this. We can count back and look at all the things he just said of the people who will not inherit the kingdom of God. But I want us to highlight verse 11. And such were some of you. There is not a person in this room that is guiltless or sinless. Or blameless. Not a person. And so whether these things are in your past. Or whether these things are in your present. That need to be repented of. And turned away from right now. He says and such were some of you. But I want to remind you who you are in Christ. You're forgiven. You've been cleansed. You've been sanctified. And set apart for his purposes. That's who you are now. And so if that's who you are now, live like it's who you are now. Just a final thought. As a church, we are accountable to one another. It's difficult to hear, but it's the truth. We are accountable to one another. We are responsible for one another. We have a responsibility to judge sin within the church, to confront disagreements and quarrels within the body, and we have a responsibility to examine ourselves individually through the process. In fact, I think if we go back to Jesus' teachings that we referenced earlier, that He didn't teach against confronting and holding accountable your brother or your sister. But what He says is, before you do that, Look through the lens of God's Word at your own heart and life. Let God work in your own heart. Let God examine your own motives. Repent of your own sins. And when you feel like God's gotten to a point where you're ready to help guide others in the right direction, then do so. But until then, you're no better than any Pharisee. Just the blind leading the blind. And I'm going to tell you what happens when we do that. We both fall in the ditch. Right? Let God cleanse our hearts. Cleanse our eyes. Cleanse our ways first. 
then we'll see clearly to help our brothers and sisters out. But know this, you're accountable for your actions. You're accountable to God. You're accountable to one another. I know this wasn't an easy sermon to hear. And thankfully not every sermon is going to be like that. But it was needful to hear. And perhaps God is confronting some sin in your own heart and life right now that needs to be repented of. Would you fall before Him this morning? Surrender your heart. Surrender your life to Him. Or maybe you see a brother or sister who's walked out of the way. And you want to lovingly guide them back to God, but you know before you can say a word to them that there's some things that need to be dealt with personally in your own heart. What better time to confront that in your own self than right now in response to what God's Word has said. I'm going to give some silence. I'm going to let His Spirit speak to yours. I pray that you'll act in faith and obedience to what He said.